This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. CBS presents America Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues. Good day and welcome to America Changed Forever. This week, a look at the negotiations between the Russians and Ukrainians. The invasion continued, but there were peace talks. But are the Russians genuinely interested in peace? I wouldn't say that Vladimir Putin wants peace. I think Vladimir Putin wants out. And he's searching, I think now, somewhat desperately, to find a face-saving way out of the quagmire that he has, has thrust Russia into. There was a pledge to pull back troops from parts of Ukraine by the Russians, but there had been little or no signs of that actually happening. Before we get to Ukraine, let's focus on what's happening here in the U.S. During the pandemic, there were a lot of people who just decided, hey, this isn't working for me. I'm quitting. Well, a lot of folks are heading back to work. Is the great resignation reversing? Megan Casella is a reporter for Barron's. Megan, thanks for joining us. You recently spent a week talking to people who left the labor force during the pandemic. What did you find out? I found that people, by and large, who left their jobs during the pandemic, the ones that I spoke to, are starting to go back. Either they're already back in new jobs or they're looking to head that way. And it was all sorts of different reasons that people were giving me as to, first, why they left their jobs in the first place and why they're going back now. But a few of the major ones, I think, you know, we've spent most of a year now talking about the reasons why people were leaving. And I was hearing those um, over and over. You know, people were fed up with their bosses or work got worse when they went remote or work got worse when they were forced to be in person, uh, when it was uh, when they felt unsafe or their kids were at home. Um, you know, they saw their savings accounts really start to blossom a little bit. The combination of government stimulus or um, strong investments that were that were improving and so they had taken some time off. And by and large, these people really had been looking forward to it. They were telling me they thought it was going to be great. Um, that you know, One person took an early retirement, was going to stay home with his kids and play golf all day. Someone else taught herself to make jewelry because she felt unsafe and, and wanted to sort of wait it out while she lived off a small inheritance that she had. Um, and, and people, you know, one, they've seen those savings start to dwindle. They've seen those retirement accounts start to um, take a hit sooner than they really wanted them to and realize they should probably start padding them. Um, they also got bored. I think that we can't underestimate that factor, too, that people um, who have been spending all this time at home, especially now as life returns more towards normal and we're really starting to live with this virus, it's a little bit more endemic. People are recognizing that they want to get back towards something like a, their normal lives pre-pandemic. And, and for many of people, that includes work as well. Um, so, you know, it, there's a lot of churn there, but I think we might be moving, start, starting to move uh, back towards some sort of pre-pandemic normal. 
Yeah, I think during the pandemic, everybody thought this was the wave of the future, that people were reassessing their lives and work. And and I wonder now, based on what you're learning, was it sounds like that was short-lived. For some people, certainly. I think there will be years to come where we're really analyzing the impact that the pandemic has had on work. But I do think that there's some section of this that is people who in the heart of the, in the heat of the pandemic, you know, weren't liking what they were doing. They were spending too much time working because maybe they were white collar workers who were at home and there was no division between work and their home life. And they just got fed up or maybe, you know, they already didn't love their managers. We're hearing a lot of people starting to complain about their managers, that that's really crucial. And uh, when work got worse and, and everyone sort of was more stressed out that they didn't want to deal with that or, Maybe people felt like they had um, someone close to them dealing with the virus and, and started recognizing, you know, if, if this is really the way we're living now, this isn't what I want to do for the rest of my life. And so I think some people are going back to where they were, but I think others are really looking at finding something new. And one of the reasons that in the story I reported how we're looking at the idea that the great resignation is starting to level off is just that so many people who wanted new jobs have already gotten them. And so I think, you know, this wasn't just people who were quitting to take time off. This was people who were quitting to find something new. And many of those people may have changed their minds or more likely they may have now found those new jobs and they're going to settle in for a while. Tell me about Scott Williams, uh, a guy who left his government job working in aviation in Jacksonville, Florida. What what did he decide to do? Yeah, he was a really key example um, because he just um, embodied so many of these things that we've been talking about. You know, he was someone who had a good, solid job, um, but had been starting to grow frustrated with it, didn't love, um, you know, parts of his situation. And so he decided to take an early retirement uh, before age 50. And he, you know, looked at his investment portfolio. He thought, I can live off of that perfectly fine. His wife continued working. He wanted to stay at home with his kids, um, play golf during the days. And he told me, you know, that was great for a while, especially through the summer when his kids were at home. That was really fun. Uh, but then they went back to school and all of his friends and his wife, they were at work all the time. And uh, he didn't, he found that he didn't have too much to do. Um, and then it was a confluence of factors. After that, it was, you know, his investment portfolio really started taking a hit with all the turmoil in the stock market this year. Um, he was growing bored, like I said, and some of the uh, aspects of his job that he hadn't liked um, at the start had changed. And so he had colleagues reaching out to him and saying, you know, maybe do you want to come back? We could offer you your old job back. Um, so he's probably more unique in that he went back to the same job, um, something that some economists are calling the great boomerang now, because we are starting to see that more and more. Um, and he, he thinks he'll be there for a few more years now. How much of this return to the job market is is based on the volatility of the stock market? I think that can't be discounted. I think that's certainly part of it, because at the same time that for lower income Americans, roughly the lowest 40 percent or so of households um, are really have spent down their excess savings by now. So everyone was really saving money during the pandemic, especially at the start when we weren't going anywhere. There were no vacations, um, less shopping, that sort of thing. And so excess savings in the country ballooned. Um, the lowest income households have spent those down. For higher income Americans, it's that they were able to invest that money and, and maybe other savings that they had as well. And when the stock market really soared through late 2020, 
that was something that people thought I can live off of this, the combination of the savings and this investment portfolio or the retirement savings that had really grown. They thought, you know, this was going to be enough. They didn't need to keep working. And so to see that take a hit, I think in combination with some of these other factors, whether it's feeling safe to leave the house again or getting bored at home or whatever it might be, if you're already considering it and you see the savings that you've been living off of really starting to dwindle, I think that's sort of a really motivating factor for some people. Is it harder for these people who are going back to work to find jobs given the tightness of the labor market? It's interesting. It's sort of a mixed picture. Um, economists would tell you we have record levels of job openings. It's almost two job openings um, per worker. And so that should mean that it should be super, super easy. They should um, be able to take whatever job that they want. Um, but workers will tell you often that you know, they don't like this narrative in the media or among economists by looking at the data that it should be so easy to find a job because they find that they're sending out millions of resumes and cover letters. And of course, it varies by field. Um, but I do think that by and large, once people are sort of looking at what they want to do and narrowing their search, um, you know, the job openings are out there. Employers really, really want to hire. Um, the divide is that workers are really looking for more than they had before. They're looking for more money. They're looking for better benefits. They're looking for more flexibility, often a hybrid work environment, sometimes at home, sometimes in the office. Um, they're looking to be treated differently. Like I said earlier, there's a lot of survey data that's starting to come out where people really care how they're treated by their manager. And then that's a big part of the work environment and whether they'll take a job. And so I think, yes, the jobs are out there. But workers are also being choosier because they feel like they have the ability and the time to do so. Um, and so there, it's going to probably take some time to really shake out. Can they afford to be choosy in the jobs that they pick, given that they've, you know, their savings is down, inflation is is up? Uh, and are these employers really changing the way that they treat their employees? I think that is one of the things that we still need to wait and see. I, I do think that many, many Americans do have the ability or they feel like they have the ability at this point to continue to be choosy. But I think that's one of the things that's starting to run out, especially as we're seeing you know, like I said, the stock market start to fall a little bit, hitting investments and savings and, and then the excess savings themselves starting to dwindle um, for so many households. So I think that was something that people really took advantage of during the pandemic, that they could take this time off and decide what they really wanted to do and where they wanted to work. Um, and while that is dwindling a little bit, I think it's last. It's still lasting at least somewhat. As far as whether employers themselves are changing, I think that's still shaking out. We are seeing wages rise, particularly in lower income sectors, showing us that these service sector workers and a lot of these people who were really on the front lines during the pandemic, leisure and hospitality, for example, they are getting raises. And so workers are seeing that or they're seeing, you know, their friends get that at other workplaces, whatever it might be, and they really are asking for it. And so I do think that while some of the less tangible aspects, employers may still have the leverage and may still be dragging their feet a little to um, you know, offer better benefits or, or that sort of thing, I think on wages in particular, they're really um, likely having to 
increase what they're offering. Um, and with the flexibility as well, especially for white collar workers, I think that's something that employers probably really need to start to do if they want to get the talent that they're looking for. Tell me about Celeste Lyons. She was um, another key example for me that sort of helped illustrate everything that's going on. Um, you know, she's in her early 60s and she was working in an administrative job at a law firm when the pandemic first hit. And, and she started getting really worried. She said she's asthmatic and she didn't want to be in the office. And, you know, similar to Scott, she had had some qualms about the, the specific job. It wasn't exactly where she wanted to be. And so add in the pandemic and the safety risk that she felt, she decided she was just going to quit and, and take some time off. And she had savings. She had a small inheritance from her parents. And she said she just stayed inside for the better part of a year, more than a year, um, something like 18 months. And she taught herself to make jewelry and she um, picked up other hobbies, but she really stayed at home and wasn't even really looking around um, for the most part. She started debating whether she wanted to go back to school and that sort of thing. Um, and it wasn't until nearly two years, so just the early this year, that she ultimately went back to a new job and she works in the healthcare field. She feels very safe where she is. She's able to work from home when the pandemic flares up. But part of it was um, for her, you know, she was getting bored and she was watching her retirement savings really start to dwindle. So it was exactly some of the major factors we've been talking about that she was living. And she thought, you know, I've had this time. I needed that. Now I'm starting to feel safe. I've got my vaccines. I've got a flexible employer. I can go back to work now. I noticed that... Scott, who is in his 50s, and Celeste, who is in her 60s, they were a part of the great resignation. But what about the younger folks out there? Were they taking part in that uh, experiment too? They, they sure were. And this is where people really start to talk about whether we should be calling it the great resignation, or is it the great reshuffling, or is it the great renegotiation? You know, what's really the right term? But we certainly were seeing workers of all ages and in all fields um, start to take part in this. Um, you know, it started with the services sector and it really spread into white collar workers as well who were reconsidering what they wanted to do. Um, younger workers, I would say, didn't have, of course, the retirement considerations um, that older workers did, but they were earlier in their careers. They may have felt like they weren't um, doing exactly what they wanted or weren't in the job that fit the best for them. Um, so they may not have had quite as much flexibility in terms of uh, living off of investment savings, retirement, inheritance, that sort of thing. But they did get the stimulus money um, from the federal government, and they were able to sort of take their time and decide, do I want to travel? Do I want to um, do this or that? And you know, they're they're going through the same thing, maybe not in the same numbers, um, but really looking at what do I want to do for the rest of my life? I noticed on your Twitter feed, you talked about Tom Brady, um, <laughs> how you were looking for a Tom Brady type. Uh, was That was leading up to this great resignation uh, article and the fact that he he went back to work. <laughs> he sure did. I'm guessing he wasn't looking at his savings and thinking, I really need to pad that account before I can retire. But uh, exactly. We've seen in the economic data that you know economists call them unretirements, people who told uh, the Labor Department that they were retired. That's how they're listed as retired in the survey. They were fully planning um, on not working anymore. And then whatever might have changed in the year or so since they took that time off, they're coming back to work. We're really seeing that increase. So I was really curious. I wanted to talk with some of those people specifically to get a sense of, you know, especially once you reach retirement for so many people, it's sort of a celebratory 
move of, you know, I'm done now. Um, I'm not doing this anymore. I've worked my whole life. I was really curious why those people were coming back to work. Well, if you love your job, like we do, why would you retire? Right, Megan? Right. Maybe you needed something like the pandemic to push you out because you didn't feel safe or um, that sort of thing. And then once everything started to settle down a little bit, you realized, oh, I wanted that job. Megan Casella, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. The negotiators have been talking. That's a good sign for peace in Ukraine. However, there is still a ways to go before any potential deal is reached. Let's discuss with Max Bergman, who is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. Max, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. All right. So these peace talks, well, they're underway. The question is... Uh, does Vladimir Putin genuinely want peace? And I, I think that's a question that uh, NATO is wondering at this point. The uh, Ukrainians are wondering at this point. Uh, what do you think based on what has happened in the past week? Well, I wouldn't say that Vladimir Putin wants peace. I think Vladimir Putin wants out. And he's searching, I think now, somewhat desperately to find a face-saving way out of the quagmire that he has has thrust Russia into. And so I think what you see in these peace talks is suddenly a, a major shift in Russian war aims and war objectives sort of dropped as this bizarre denazification talk dropped or any sort of pretense that they will have a, a regime change in Kiev. And I think what the Russians are after right now, both diplomatically and militarily, is to try to find something that they can package to send home to the Russian people and also to an international audience that can claim that they were somewhat successful. And I think what that means is on the ground, they're going to try to gain some territory in the east, so more territory than they had after they uh, effectively invaded in 2014. So they'll try to gain some territory. Then they'll try to, in diplomatic talks, try to get Ukraine to say that it'll never join NATO commit to uh, certain security provisions that, you know, Ukraine might have been willing to, uh, to agree to without resorting to war. But they'll, they'll take that, they'll sort of package it together, and I think would, would want to claim victory, and then send that back to the, the Russian public and say, you know, we bore some costs here. But like, look, we have more territory. Uh, Russia denazified Ukraine. We took down the the fascist military of Ukraine. They'll they'll use all this rhetoric. So I think that that's sort of where we are right now. And the question is whether the Ukrainians feel like they have the military upper hand and would be willing to to agree to something like that that Putin might be able to sell as a win. Well, let's let's just delve deeper into these negotiations because there were actually some reports. Uh, which uh, some of which have been dismissed about, you know, the, this concern about people being poisoned during these talks, you know? And, and so if, if, if that is a concern, as you sit down to the negotiating table, yeah, how do you move forward? If, if there is, you know, if these talks lack that level of, trust and, and good faith. So I, I saw those reports and, and frankly, they're totally, uh, they're both totally shocking and then totally uh, believable at the same time, in part because we know that Russia has a history of poisoning and assassinating people 
or attempting to assassinate people through the use of, of chemical weapons and, and other poisons. The skepticism I have about the reports is that the Ukrainians are, are still meeting with them. And I would think if the Ukrainians felt that this was sort of a directed hit on them by the Kremlin, by Putin, whether they would keep talking, because if I was a diplomatic negotiator, I wouldn't want to attend. But it could be a sign that there's a division within the Kremlin between hardliners and perhaps those willing to negotiate. I'm not sure. It's a just it's such a bizarre story and almost beyond the pale. But I think the fact that they're still sitting down and the talks are continuing lends me to be a little bit skeptical of the of the veracity of the reporting. But I, you know, it, it, I would not put it past the Russians that they would take such action. All right. And what about Ukraine and their negotiating tactics here? Uh, right at the outset, giving up uh, this desire to be part of NATO, remaining neutral. Why, why do you think they would do that right out of the gate? Well, I, I think for a number of reasons, which I think is why that NATO membership wasn't actually the main driver of this conflict. It's not why I think Russia invaded. I think Russia invaded simply because it wanted control over Ukraine. And the reason why I think they would drop it is because the Ukrainians recognize that they're simply not going to be able to become NATO members if Russia controls part of their territory. And they recognize that that's just going to be a, a, an obstacle. But I also think that the main reason is because the Ukrainians are, are hoping that's a concession that the Russians will uh, buy into. All the while, the main focus of the Ukrainian government appears to be membership of the European Union. Uh, and and let's, if we go back and remember uh, what kickstarted the current conflict and challenges between Russia and Ukraine was back in 2013, when the uh, previous pro-Russian government of Ukraine decided not to sign an agreement with the EU, an association agreement, which would basically improve economic ties between Ukraine and, and the European Union. And Ukrainians took to the streets waving EU flags. That's a part of what this is about, is that Ukraine wants to be part of Europe, part of the European Union, the European political project. And so I think what Ukraine is hoping is that if they forswear NATO membership, that they can get into the EU. And I think they would have a long way to go to getting into the EU, but I think that's part of the reason, while they're potentially willing to make that concession, that we haven't seen them concede a desire, on their desire to join the European Union. But I think they may feel that NATO perhaps triggers Russia, but is also something I think they might be willing to give away, given uh, membership in NATO would effectively mean, you know, NATO war with Russia because Russia occupies Crimea and occupies now parts of eastern Ukraine even before this conflict. Perhaps uh, I wonder if the thinking is, all right, so we won't officially be a member of NATO. But what this invasion has shown is that members of NATO have Ukraine's back. You know, and and while they might not be in NATO uh, officially, I mean, they're they have NATO protection, and that's pretty clear. The Ukrainians want the United States to get involved in this conflict. They want NATO to be, you know, send in planes, to send in boots on the ground, and that's a natural response. Any country that's being invaded would want any other countries to send their forces. And the Biden administration made clear that it, it wasn't going to do that. And other NATO countries have made clear they're not going to, to militarily uh, directly intervene. 
But that doesn't mean they're not militarily intervening, as you note. That what they're doing is providing a tremendous amount of security assistance, of weaponry, of economic aid, of other things that have really made a huge difference on uh, on the ground in this fight. Uh, because the Ukrainians are using modern NATO American weaponry. They're basically the, the, the javelin missiles that they're employing, for instance, are being taken from U.S. troops and sent to Ukraine. These are the very weapons that, that our uh, men and women who fight would be using. And that's proving to have a tremendous impact. And when you see, not just the United States doing this, but countries like Germany, who have never provided lethal assistance before in their modern history, and the European Union, which has never provided lethal assistance, and doing so in a kind of colossal scale at the tune of uh, effectively a billion dollars, it's, I think, demonstrating tremendous support militarily for Ukraine. Now, I think the tricky part in these negotiations is Ukraine wants to try to construct some sort of security guarantee that if Russia were to reinvade, that that would automatically trigger some sort of intervention or support, basically from NATO members from the United States, from Poland or from France. I sort of struggle to see how this new security architecture is what they're kind of describing it, how that will actually work and function, because, you know, that requires everyone to sign up to. And when you start getting in these new architectures, you know, it's kind of how World War One happened, right? It was all these various pacts and agreements coming to someone's aid. And we have that through NATO. And so Ukraine's trying to find a creative way that basically they can make peace with Russia, but also be confident that Russia will be deterred from invading it again. And that's one of the critical challenges here in any diplomatic talks. Just how do you give assurances to Ukraine that they won't be invaded again? And I, I, I'm, it's going to be difficult. And I think that's why they're focused on EU membership. And it's also why I am somewhat pessimistic about the talks and think the fighting is likely to continue. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to see how they get to a ceasefire even at, at this point, given where things stand. Uh, what what do you think, as someone who worked at the State Department, in terms of the security assistance that they've received uh, from NATO, from the United States, what do you think is the most important piece of weaponry that they've gotten thus far? That's a great question. I'm going to answer it in two ways. One, I think there's the equipment that they got before this conflict and then the equipment that they've received sort of after endearing. So I think one of the things that when when I look back uh, since 2014, you know, we basically had no security relationship with with Ukraine prior to 2014. They were receiving about $2 million from the United States for peacekeeping operations that they were participating in in the Balkans. It was basically there was no relationship. And one of the things in the first few years of, you know, 2014, 15, and 16 during the Obama administration was simply trying to sort of rebuild the Ukrainian military. And because there was a non-lethal policy, the Obama administration wasn't providing lethal assistance, something that I, I was opposed to, but it had an, a side benefit, which meant that all the money that was now being suddenly appropriated for Ukraine went to sort of building up a core competency, the ability of, of Ukrainian forces to, to work together, to, to communicate. You know, Ukrainian forces were using Russian cell phones and Russian cell towers to effectively talk to each other, which then allowed the Russians to pinpoint them. So I would point to things like secure communications, 
secure radios so the Ukrainians can communicate. And then and what that allows you to do is to move your forces. It's just one of those critical things that, you know, it isn't fancy necessarily, but is actually can, you know, if you can have secure communications and, and describe your movements and where you are, it's really important on the battlefield. But then the next most obvious one is that the assistance that we've been providing from before this conflict, but especially surging in the anti-tank weaponry, the anti-vehicle weaponry, the anti-armor, the Javelin missile in particular, and the the British version N-Laws and and some of the European varieties have just been absolutely uh, critical. Because what they've done is allow Ukraine, again, with sort of secure communications to adopt small unit tactics to sort of uh, disperse their forces and ambush Russian troops moving these big clunky columns, take out some uh, fuel trucks and other things that the Russians need for logistical support. And they've really kind of uh, leveled the playing field and allowed uh, Ukraine to uh, do tremendous damage to the Russian military to the point where uh, I think, you know, when we see the Russians sort of giving up on potentially encircling Kiev, it's because of that firepower. You know, I should say the underlying thing here is that the the will of the Ukrainians has been so strong. You know, that's the key factor, that their willingness to fight. And then you give people willing to fight the weaponry. And man, it makes a huge difference on the battlefield. And I think so I would say the secure communications and then, you know, looking at the anti-armor that we've been providing have just been uh, tremendously impactful. Yeah, and it's really been um, it is, you know, this invasion is difficult to watch, especially when you see the, the death toll. Uh, to civilians, but to see and hear these reports about Russian troops being uh, demoralized, uh, you you have to wonder, uh, and yeah, we're seeing all these reports about Vladimir Putin getting bad information, but I really, I, I wonder what is going through his head right now, seeing the Russian army uh, that had this image of near invincibility prior to this invasion. And now uh, they are looking so, so weak. Um, And as these peace talks continue, you know, what does that mean for, for Russia going forward and its national security, what does it mean for Vladimir Putin? You know, how does the world go back to dealing with Vladimir Putin? Uh, Given what the president of the United States said last week, of course, the White House was trying to walk that back, uh, that Joe Biden was encouraging regime change. But, you know, there are a lot of people wondering, well, what happens to Vladimir Putin now? He is, well, he appears weaker than ever. Now, it sort of reminds me a bit of kind of like a 90s video game where you're sort of advancing each level and then suddenly your health starts to drop and you're, you're you know, you were a solid uh, color and then you start to flicker as you lose life that I think, you know, I think Vladimir Putin faces now challenges on a number of different fronts. Uh, at home. Uh, I think there's pillars of the regime that now look incredibly shaky. And if we just sort of go through it, you know, the economy is is taking a beating. I know folks are saying, well, the ruble is sort of recovering and the stock market reopened. But, you know, one of the things that's going to happen is that you have all these big Russian factory towns that are basically Soviet era that built massive industrial factories. 
And, you know, they rely on imported parts. They rely on parts from Germany, parts from European Union, some United States to operate machines to make cars. And suddenly you don't have those parts, you can't make the cars. So they're starting to furlough workers. So you're going to have a lot of people that are unemployed, that are losing their job. We're seeing runs on on things like sugar and other uh, staples, McDonald's closing down. So, you know, there's going to be real angst amongst the Russian public, furloughed workers. And maybe that's not going to be directed at Putin necessarily because, you know, he's because of the propaganda apparatus, but it's going to be directed somewhere, potentially at local mayors, at governors. So that's going to really, I think, undermine some of uh, Russia's uh, internal stability. But then you look at kind of the the protectors of the regime, the FSB, which is the internal security, who is in charge of the intelligence for Ukraine. And there are reports that some of the senior leaders have basically been arrested or put under house arrest or been dismissed. And so there's got to be a lot of concern in the FSB that they're getting thrown under the bus. And then the Rosgardia, who are kind of the, the people with batons that beat up protesters, uh, have been ground down, uh, have been sent into Ukraine and have been mowed down in these columns. They've lost a ton of people. And so there's got to be a lot of angst amongst uh, the Rosgardia and the, the, the reserve forces. Uh, so these are the you know people to protect the regime. And then you have the oligarchs that have just been forced back to Russia, have lost tens of billions of dollars. And many of them are sycophants and just sort of you know in, in line with the regime no matter what. But many of them are smart schemers that came of age in kind of the mobbed up days of the 90s and, you know, will plot and they have a lot of money. And so what you're seeing is that sort of all these different pillars of the regime could be wobbly. And you can never predict how this will happen. You know, past regime collapses around the world always strike everyone you know, uh, off guard. But stuff happens. And you know, Mubarak falls in Egypt suddenly and, and things like that. So I, I, I don't know. I don't exactly, I think it's impossible to predict. I think the US has to proceed as if Putin's going to be there for a while, has to adopt the sanctions, uh, strong sanctions necessary, as if he's going to be there and just keep putting the pressure on uh, to basically limit his choices and options, where if he wants to rebuild his military, then that means sacrificing the economic well-being of Russia. Um, so I, I, I think we're doing the right things uh, when it comes to responding uh, to Russia right now. And I think he's in a lot of trouble. Well, I, and I wonder, though, if there is some sort of ceasefire or peace deal, wouldn't that include dropping or easing the sanctions? And would the U.S. really want to do that? U.S. and Ukrainian interests might not be fully aligned, that I could see a situation in which Ukraine, you know, we don't quite know the state of Ukraine's forces, military forces. We know that Russia has lost a lot of people. We know Ukraine has likely lost a lot of people, but we don't quite know the condition of their uh, forces. The U.S. and other Western intelligence agencies, for good reasons, aren't speculating or talking about that. Uh, So it could be that Ukraine needs to agree to a ceasefire and needs to end this war because it it may it's worried it may not be able to hold out militarily. So then it's willing to make some concessions to Russia about territory. And then it comes to us and says, hey, this means getting rid of some sanctions. And I think we should be willing to do that and follow Ukraine's direction. But I think the challenge here is that for the West, for the United States, for Europe, it is critical that this be seen as a strategic defeat for Russia, Uh, not simply because of uh, Ukraine, but so that other big countries don't see that they can go in, invade uh, another country, steal some of its territory and be sanctioned, and then as part of the peace agreement, basically be able to to be let off the hook. 
So I think that there will be a tremendous resistance to getting rid of all the sanctions. I could see uh, as part of a peace agreement and ceasefire, we should be willing to, I think, get rid of quite many of the sanctions. But I think some will remain. And I think that that's going to be one of the main sort of uh, question marks and in, in, in points of dialogue, I think, between the U.S. and Ukraine and also U.S. and Europe, where U.S. may not want to get rid of sanctions on Russia due to its actions, but Ukraine may press us to do that uh, in order to have peace. So I think that's one of those areas that we're going to have to wait and see. And I think, you know, I hope that that's one of those things that you want to see litigated behind closed doors between the U.S. and Ukrainians as we sort of work it out. But there, there could be some differences there. Max Bergman, thanks for your time. Thanks so much for having me. Bruce Johnson is one of those news reporters that you never forget. During his long career, you could see that he cared about the stories that he covered and the people in them. He's written a memoir. It's about his career, his life growing up in Louisville. It's called Surviving Deep Waters. Bruce, thanks for being with us. My pleasure, Jeff. Great talking to you. All right. So tell me first, we got a lot to talk about, including our history and how you had an impact on my career. But first, let's talk about your memoir, Surviving Deep Waters. Why did you write write it? Well, the title comes from uh, this park, Chickasaw Park, which was in Louisville's uh, West End. Uh, you know, I, I grew up in the 50s. So, you know, legal se- uh, segregation, other black people. We, we lived in public housing starting out. Uh, but our role models were all there with us because they, they couldn't live in white neighborhoods. So lawyers, doctors, educators, that sort of thing. So, and we all conjugated at Chickasaw Park. That was the place for picnics, sports, guys polishing up their cars, driving through the park, that sort of thing. And the Ohio River bordered uh, Chickasaw Park. And we were kids, we would swing out on these tree limbs over the water. And then we would drop like rocks into the water and then dog pedal because we couldn't even swim. We call it dog paddling. And you, you had to move quickly or the current would take you down river, of course. So surviving deep waters, that, that's where it originated. But uh, needless to say, I mean, when you're at anything this long, you're going to be in a lot of deep water and you, you've got you to survive. Uh, and, and the hopes and dreams are that you will thrive you know, at some point. So that's what that's what the title came from. So how did how did growing up the way you did how did that impact you as a journalist? Wow. Okay. Uh, and journalism discovered me. Uh, you know, I've never had a journalism course, but I started out in Cincinnati, Ohio, still in undergrad school. I had a news director by the name of Val Shalokan, who had an eighth grade education, white German Catholic guy, but he was the most phenomenal newsman I'd ever seen in my life. And he was also the anchor man. And so we broke every story you could imagine in Cincinnati, whether it be the fired basketball coach at the University of Cincinnati, whether it be a couple of stolen Rembrandts, you know, from the Taft Art Museum, uh, whether it was a cop beaten up, you know, his prostitution, you know, girlfriend. We own that town. And so that, that's how I learned, you know, how to report and how to do investigative reporting, how to be first, you know, with the story. And I'm going to tell you, Jeff, you know, day two, I'm saying to myself, I can't believe they're paying us to get into other people's business. So I knew, you know, I found, you know, my career. I was the only black in the newsroom uh, for most of those four years. No photographers, no editors. 
no other writers, nobody else on air. It was just me. It was a very, very lonely experience. Uh, the, the, the motive for hiring me, and they also hired two white women at the same time. Shadow Cotty did. He was news director and the anchor guy. Um, so I guess we were, you know, his affirmative action program back then. We didn't take anybody's jobs. Uh, he was expanding, you know, his newscast. And we all turned out to be pretty good. But um, so, so I, I don't know that, that anybody, you know, set out to be my mentor. Anybody set out to turn me into a reporter. It was kind of like, it, it, it was it was a good bet because you know if I didn't make it, they they hadn't they hadn't put a lot up you know it, 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 it there was no risk involved as far as it, they were concerned and so and the reason why I was determined to make it because I didn't have a backup plan you know I didn't have anywhere else to go and so I stayed uh, and uh, it, it wasn't easy it got easier and the more success I had there the easier it got. You know, as you know, it's a very competitive business, and and those that bring incredible value are valued. So that's how it started out for me. And uh, you know, after four years there, and I finished undergrad school in Cincinnati, uh, I, I finished grad school well in Cincinnati, and then when I finished grad school, I, I knew right then and there, okay, I'm out of here. You know, I had sent out videotapes, you know, to Detroit, Chicago, New York, but uh, Washington D.C. was always number one. On my Mm, what what do you make of the news environment, the local news environment we're in now? I mean, you're, you know, like network news, local news is competing with social media and oftentimes stories that frankly just don't exist, stories that lack facts. So so what what is your take on how social media has impacted uh, news coverage in Washington, D.C., really local news across the country? I, I, I think for the, for the most part, by the time the news comes on at six o'clock, seven o'clock, 11 o'clock at night, I can look at my phone and know everything that's going on. So I don't need you at five, six, seven and 11 o'clock at night. Uh, and that's too bad because there was a time when I would tune in to local news because you could give me something. You could take me someplace. You could interview the people that I couldn't get to on my own. Okay. And uh, you stop doing that, you know, in local news. Uh, you know, they were forever changing the format. This is what we're about this week. You know, three weeks later, we're changing that. Uh, three weeks later, we're, we're, we're concentrating on Northern Virginia. After that, we're concentrating on Prince George's County. Then we're concentrating on Montgomery County. Then we're concentrating on the district. So it, it was just constant change. Uh, and so... I, I think journalism is in trouble. Uh, one of the things that really bothers me, Jeff, is that we spend so much time on correcting misinformation. I think too much. I think, again, going back to the cell phone, most of this, this misinformation, I, I can correct myself, you know, using my cell phone. I mean, I got to do is Google stuff, you know, uh, Wikipedia eh, sometimes, but it, it's, it's, it's ridiculous that uh, time that had been spent cultivating, digging up good stories uh, that I couldn't find on my own is now being spent on, you know, misinformation and, uh, and, and, and how to prove that wrong. So I don't like that at all. So, and, and, and the numbers are very low. I mean, God, we, we, we are fighting, I mean, with, with, with spears and shields for just, just the smallest amount of audience so I, I, I honestly, I don't, I don't see how all these stations are going to last. 
you know, how many stations, how many local stations do you need, uh, you know, in, in any one town? So, um, you know, and then on top of all that, I, I'm really concerned about the young people that are coming into the business. And, and, and you, you mentioned that they are very smart. Uh, they, they know the technology and they know that they've got to, they've got to come up with a story. They've got to shoot the story, videotape the story. They've got to present the story, stand in front of the camera. Uh, you know, you know, they had to edit the story and then they got to do, uh, you know, social media, you know, they have to feed that beast too. So they don't have a lot of time to stand around after the yellow tape is rolled up like we used to have to get the real story, you know, the real backstory. You know, how did these two people end up in this place, one dead, the other under arrest? They don't have time for that. You know, when the yellow tape is rolled up, they got to they gotta leave too, if only for their own safety. Uh, you know, we got a lot of women out there now who are MMJs and, uh, and a lot of young people. Uh, and they're new. They, they don't know the lay of the land. A lot aren't given time to know the lay of the land. So the, the, those things aren't good. And it's really unfair. To, to, to young people. I think we have an obligation to them. Uh, so so we, we got to fix these things. As someone, of course, I'm at CBS News now, network news, but I spent, you know, the first 25, 30 years of my career in local TV news. And I don't think, I don't think people really understand the challenges of being a local television news reporter and that you are wearing multiple hats in, in most cities. You talked about how these younger journalists are having to shoot, edit, deliver the news, write the news. Uh, they are getting paid less than we used to starting out. Although, you know, my first uh, job paid me $11,000 a year. College graduate, you know, it's a bit of a shock to the system. But uh, in the end, it, it, it pays off. But yeah, these kids today, they're having to juggle more responsibility covering local news. And, and Bruce, you may not know this, but I was just doing a little research. According to Pew Research Center, television remains a common place for Americans to get their news with local TV uh, really in, in a lot of ways leading the way. In 2020, local TV news saw its audience increase across the evening and late night time slots. I wonder... And I want to get your take on this, Bruce. Do you think that's because of the pandemic when people needed factual information, when it mattered for their health and their families, they turned to local news, the people they grew up seeing, the people that they, uh, in, in, you know, in many cases, the people that they trust to, to get their news from? No, you're absolutely right. And, and, and I think we need to go back, you know, and, and, and freshen that data because look at the things that we saw uh, unfold during the pandemic. Uh, the George Floyd, uh, Breonna Taylor, uh, Black Lives Matter demonstrations, uh, uh, people who were locked in their homes and, and watching television because they wanted to know about the police killings of Black people, but they also wanted to know about the pandemic. What's the latest? You know, got to wear a mask. When's this going to be over? What about my kids? When do we go back to school? 80% of the offices in downtown Washington are still empty. People are still at home. And the businesses, the business people, and, and I spend a little time with them, uh, they want to know from the federal government, when are you going to open? You, you, you know, when are you going to send people back to work? That's a dilemma because a lot of people who have a lot of experience, 
who has some options may not want to come back to work. Uh, and then what? And, and you know, it has a trickle down effect. I mean, it, it impacts Uber, the taxis, the restaurants, uh, the shoe shine parlor, it, you know, everything. So, you know, all this money that, that we're awash in right now is going to be gone. You, you know, we've been writing checks like crazy. Uh, you know, the federal government's been printing money and we've been spending it, you know, and that, that's going to be gone, at, you know, at some point in time. So I think um, uh, we, we'll see because I, I think as the weather gets great again, and I think you can see it already, people are not going to want to stay inside. They're not going to be home, you know, for the five and six and seven o'clock news. People want to get outside, whether it's to the park uh, uh, to the Potomac, you know, across the Bay Bridge. Uh, I mean, pe- people are outside, they're smiling, they're treating one another well. I mean, we, we, we have been through a very, very difficult time. So I think that data that says people are watching local news, you, you, know, you know, and I'm, I'm sure it's local news corporations, you know, that, that, that welcome that kind of stuff. I, I don't know if that's going to hold up. I, I really don't. I, for one, hope it does. I- you know, I, I think we can all, you know, if you're listening to this program, uh, maybe you had a local news anchor, female, male, who you watched growing up, who really had an impact on your life. I remember you know, when I was growing up and even when I got into the business, there were uh, anchors that I really looked up to. Dwight Lauderdale, who was in Miami, Vince Gibbons, an anchor in Milwaukee, Bill Ritter in New York. I worked with him for a long time. Jim Vance and and you, Bruce, here in Washington, D.C. And uh, just to fill our, our listeners in on, on how you and I first connected probably more than 30 years ago. My father used to work out at a gym in Washington, D.C., and Bruce Johnson went to that gym. Jim, Jim Vance, uh, who anchored at the NBC affiliate in Washington, D.C. for a long time, he was in that gym. Also, a guy named Jim Hanley, who is still anchoring in, in D.C., he worked out in that gym, and my father... Uh, you know, the great dad that he is, he he would he connected with you and Jim and and Jim Vance and Jim Hanley, uh, and each and all three of you guys made contact with me in in some form or fashion. Uh, and at the time, I was a young, up and coming nobody journalist. Uh, I think in Dayton, Ohio, and Rockford, Illinois, and yet. You're the big guy in, in Washington, D.C., and you helped me out. You remember that? Of course. And I used to say to myself, you must have the greatest dad in the world. <laughs> no, seriously. Uh, because, and it's in my book. I, I never knew my father, okay? So I grew up without a dad. So, uh, and I don't know of an upside to not having a dad, you know? And I, and I write about this, and I didn't learn until I was 40 years old that the guy that I thought was my natural father he never lived with us, but he wasn't my natural father. My natural father never knew that I existed and I didn't know that he existed. So, and that's, that, that, that's the chapter in my book. So, uh, but we, in my neighborhood, we had dads like your dad, okay, who not only would, would talk up his son. Now, now, this is a paraphrase, but I, I kind of remember your dad saying something to the effect, you need to meet my son. My son's in the business. 
and he's going to be up there with you guys at some point in time. <laughs> that and sounds like something you would say. No, 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 seriously, dude. Then I look up and I see you in Baltimore, right? You were in Baltimore, right? Correct. Uh, and, and you're doing live shots at night. Uh, and then I look up and you're in New York uh, and because I'm visiting in New York. And I'm not surprised, Jeff, at all by your moving up like this. And then you end up at CBS and it becomes like the prophecy fulfilled and your dad's dreams and aspirations fulfilled. But it's not a surprise. You know, you, you earned everything that you've gotten. And, and, and you're the kind of guy when you, even to this day, I kid you not, when you come on the camera, you have my attention. I tell young people all the time, your number one job is not to waste the viewer's time. Uh, tell me something, you know, that I can't get on my cell phone when you come on. And, and, and you know, I don't know if that's your mantra or not, but, but you certainly carry that well. Uh, you, you know, and, and I'm just so proud of you. Just so proud of you. And listen, I I try to do for younger journalists what you did and Jim Vance and Jim Hanley did for me, which was be a mentor, be a uh, someone that I can bounce some ideas off of. You know, how do I do this? I try to do that uh, because you helped me. Uh, and again, for our listeners, you know, whether it's a, a teacher, a police officer, you know, there's, there's somebody in your community and maybe, uh, if you're one of our listeners, maybe you're that person for some kid somewhere who's trying to figure out what he's going to do with the rest of his life, you know, and that was really, you had an impact on me, but also a guy named Max Robinson who oh, wow. back in the seventies, he also worked in Washington, DC in the 70s, late 70s, he was the first black anchor of World News Tonight with Peter Jennings and Frank Reynolds. Uh, and I remember, you know, my father was a, a banker, successful. He would dress up in a suit and he had his afro. And that always had an impact on me, as did this guy that I didn't really, that I didn't know, except from TV, which who was Max Robinson back in the day. Just like you, you know, being an African-American male had that impact on me. Jim Hanley, who is not African-American, but even he had an impact on me because he took the time to see what I was about and who I wanted to be and, and look at my tapes and my work to see how I could do better. You know, so it, it's really remarkable in my view how you can have some an impact on somebody's life that you don't even know. No, you're absolutely right. I, I worked with Max for, for two years after I came to Washington. I came to Washington on uh, March 15th, you know, 1976. And I write that it was a bad day for Julius Caesar, but it was a great day for me, uh, the Ides of March. Uh, Max, in the two years that I got to work with him, an incredible impact on me. Max Robinson is the kind of guy that would just stroll into the newsroom sit at his desk, type his script, go out on the air and do his job with the, the, the most incredible professionalism. Uh, Max, he, he hated screw ups on the air. As a matter of fact, he carried it too far. Max refused to read retractions on the air. If a reporter made a mistake, Max wouldn't read the retraction uh, because his position was, I didn't make the mistake. Why am I doing the retraction? 
And Pat Collins, one of our reporters, once uh, uh, said, if you pay me what you're paying Max, I'll do nothing but retractions. <laughs> Pat Collins, another legendary local reporter. Ed Bradley is another guy. You know, the times I would get, you know, to go up to the White House and that's that's something you get to do being in Washington. You can cover You can be at the district building one day, the Capitol the next day, the White House the next day. You can be traveling abroad. I, I mean, th this poor kid from the projects in Louisville. I mean, you know, I've been, to, I've been to Moscow. I've been to China. I've been to Paris. I've been, been all over Africa. I've just been so many places. And it's because of this job, you know, and, and this being Washington. Uh, that I got to do all these things. And the thing that I learned from Ed Bradley, and I was like a sponge, pretty much like you were. You, you kind of reminded me of a sponge. Uh, you, you were taking everything in. And when you're talking to a young person, you have to realize that they are taking everything in, not just what you say. They're, they're watching your mannerisms. They're, they're watching to see if you're really invested in them. But Ed Bradley, uh, to me, was Mr. Cool. Uh, on the White House lawn, I'd look up and all the reporters would be galloping to whatever, the president's coming out or whatever, somebody's coming out and they'd be, they'd be running, you know, just 10 deep. And then behind them walked Ed Bradley, who just refused to run. He wasn't going to break a sweat. And I used to say to myself, I, I want to be cool like him. <laughs> he was cool. He was cool. He, he was the first guy on TV that I remember having a, an earring. Yeah. You know, and then he was... Yeah. He was on 60 Minutes. Right. You know, he was as cool as can be. That is for sure. Bruce Johnson, you've had a huge impact on local news and on me personally. I really enjoyed this conversation. Your memoir is Surviving Deep Waters. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Jeff. I'll see you around. I'll see you out there. That is this week's America Change Forever. Thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. You can download and review this podcast and check your local listing to see when the show airs on your favorite radio station. And you can listen every Saturday on Sirius XM POTUS Channel 124. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jeff Begays, and that is How America Changed Forever. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.